Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. Hello, hello, everyone. This is part three of the audiobook, Me Reading My Own Book. Everything you should know about healthy blood sugar, simple strategies to conquer almost any health problem. Of course, make sure you've listened to part one and two. And you can get this book on Amazon, and you can see this and all of my other books on my website, notusbooks.org. And in the audiobook section, you can also see the free audio and video versions of all of my books, including this one. It is on YouTube where I read the book to you, and you can see the words on the screen. So you can find everything that I do, all the social media channels, hundreds of book reviews, most of them are about health, and an archive of this podcast, including episodes that are not posted to podcast here, secret episodes. You can see all of that on notusbooks.org. Links are in the description, of course, and I hope you enjoy the book. Thank you. You don't have to eat organic food or eat within a specific window of time, and you don't have to exercise or meditate to have healthy blood sugar. You just need to ensure that your body has enough nutrients to do the job of metabolizing blood sugar. Most of the foods on our bad list don't have anything to do with blood sugar. Free radicals damage the body, but grains are the only food on our list that directly contribute to blood sugar problems by creating absorption problems. The worst habits have to change first. Gluten has to go. Cooking oils have to be replaced with animal fats. You don't have to change everything at once. Very few people do. I now buy a lot of organic food, and one day it will be 100% of my groceries. But it took me years to afford these optimization changes. Whatever habits you have, try to do it in the healthiest way possible. This is why I don't bug people to quit alcohol. Alcoholics should definitely wean down to the point where they're not an alcoholic anymore. Alcoholics can get themselves under control and still enjoy a reasonable dose of alcohol in the future, just like food addicts can still enjoy food after they sort their addiction out. My point here is something I've said already. We don't have to be perfect, but we can do a lot better with a few key changes. With the basic supplementation of the required nutrients for healthy blood sugar and the avoidance of gluten and excess sugar, most of the rest of what you do doesn't matter that much. It really can be that simple. 
but this leaves a lot of room to optimize things and pick the healthiest choices for the things you enjoy. If you love juices, buy a juicer. If you love milk, get to know a farmer or two. Establish a relationship and get your eggs and meat from them too. I bet it will cost less for animal products raised with love and respect from a real farmer than the cheap meat will cost at the grocery store. Get a big freezer and buy it in bulk. Make bone and vegetable broth yourself at home for a fraction of the cost of a packaged version in the store. Make it in bulk and freeze it. You can buy bags of soup bones from your local grocery store or butcher. You may have to ask the butcher counter for this because it might not be on the shelves. And you can make vegetable broth from scraps like onion peels and the ends of carrots. All of our broth is made from scraps, no whole vegetables. If you must buy liquids from a store, make sure there is no added sugar. I started this chapter talking about the gym, and I made it sound like exercise was bad. It's not. Exercise in some form is essential. We must move. In the next chapter, I will go more into circulation, but for now I must simply say that exercise without supplementation is indeed dangerous. That's why my pain got worse in the gym. The minerals required for healthy muscles, bones, joints, and several other tissues are simply not in the food. That's why some of my fittest friends ended up with serious injuries. The exercise or the sport did not cause the injury. The deficiency in micronutrients generally, and connective tissues specifically, are really to blame. You can supplement with the constituent components of connective tissues, and you can also eat them. People who exercise more need more of all the nutrient groups covered in this book. They need more water, more water-soluble nutrients, more macro and micronutrients in general, and they especially require extra connective tissue. By weight, our bodies are mostly muscle and connective tissue. Most of us eat animal muscles, and that is great, but if we do not eat or supplement with connective tissue, we are failing to provide the raw material for our bodies to make its own connective tissues. Connective tissues are found all over the body. They literally hold the body together. Our joints and intestines are made mostly of connective tissue, as is our skin and the elastic fibers that hold muscle to bone and connect veins and keep organs in place. All nerve fibers require connective tissue. The stuff is important, and that is why you will see a range of benefits, from skin to digestion to pain relief, by reading reviews of common connective tissue supplements like collagen or glucosamine or chondritin. You don't have to supplement with connective tissue, but it is a good idea since we are unlikely to get enough from food. The problem with the hardening of the cell membrane is most likely a connective tissue deficiency, along with several other micronutrients. This is because the cell membrane is essentially connective tissue. Those primitive people who ate the bones and the ash and so on also ate nearly all of the connective tissues of the animals they consumed. The main food sources of connective tissue is literally the connective tissues of animals. Plants do not make connective tissue. They make cellulose, or plant fiber. Eat the bones and joints and skin of smaller animals, and make broths from the bones and joints of larger animals. You can eat nearly an entire chicken just by chewing it, except for the thickest parts of the few biggest bones. You can make broths with the leftover bones, and if you are really serious, you can grind up the softened bones and add the bone meal to your regular dishes. Exercise increases the rate that we lose micronutrients, because our sweat is a soup of all the nutrients we have in the blood. We might not be ingesting all 90 essential nutrients, but whatever we are getting is in the sweat and is lost by sweating. We run into serious problems if we try to replenish all those lost nutrients with only water, or a sport drink made essentially from just salt and sugar. Salt is necessary, but sweat is more than salt. 
The same concept counts for bleeding as well. Obviously, if all of the nutrients we have available are in the blood, then losing blood requires replenishment. Women naturally bleed regularly through menstruation, and it is no wonder that this time of the month tends to make them feel worse in a number of ways. There are a lot of studies and articles and even books on the differences in the appearance of health problems in men and women. Authors tend to emphasize the fact that women usually go to the doctor more often than men, and thus their health problems are officially reported and treated more often. In every country that has been studied, women live longer than men, but longer does not necessarily mean better or healthier. The difference in longevity is largely because men are more prone to dangerous activities. Men play with guns and motorcycles and are both the typical perpetrators and victims of violence. Men also smoke more than women and drink more alcohol, and thus are also more likely to be harmed by alcohol-related injuries and accidents. In the health business, we know that by far most of our customers will be women. Women spend much more of their money on health in general. Though women do go to the doctor more, and therefore show up more often in disease statistics, I believe that they actually have more health problems in general. Though due to the underreporting of male problems, I do not expect good data on the matter. I say this mostly from experience. I cannot tell you how many times a woman has come to me for health advice, and though she is in the company of a man, the man is hardly listening. She has a list of health problems, and he probably does too, but hers are obviously worse. Most of the time, these pairs of people have eaten practically the same thing for decades, but the woman is more likely to listen to her doctor. She will make the same dinner and put butter on his plate, but not her own. He will use the salt shaker, and she will not. She will take her medications, and he will not. As a result of following bad advice, and by the cruelty of nature that women naturally lose more nutrients than men through menstruation and childbirth, she has more pronounced health problems. Sometimes the woman is wheelchair-bound from critical diabetes, obesity, or arthritis, and her husband is standing tall, chewing tobacco and rolling his eyes at our nutritional discussion. If he were listening, he would realize that we are pretty much telling him what he would want to hear. Eat all the fat and salt you want, pharmaceutical drugs aren't the answer, and abstaining from smoking and drinking really are not the key factors to health. Usually the clients we see in the absolute worst health are women. Most of these worst cases are women who used to be athletes. Further, most of these athletic women have had more than one child, and typically their major health concerns appeared after childbirth. It is heartbreaking if you think about it, because these women generally did exactly what they were supposed to do, according to their doctors. They listened, and they exercised, and they changed their diets, and took the medications, and so on. This is the triple whammy of nutrient loss. Sweat, blood, and babies. Babies require a ton of macro and micronutrients to grow in the womb. And breast milk is full of nutrients as well. Women build entire human beings in their bellies. Obviously, it is a lot of work for the female body to do all of this, and all of that work requires nutrition but she also has to physically give up her own nutrients to build the baby and make the milk. There is no well-known prenatal multivitamin on the market that comes anywhere close to providing enough nutrients to do the job. Prenatal formulas are often taken too late as well. Many birth defects happen in the first moments of pregnancy, during the first cell divisions. If nutrients are missing very early in pregnancy, major defects can happen. Women typically don't start taking a prenatal formula until they've missed two menstrual periods. And by that time, a lot of important formation has already occurred. Often, one of the first problems that a woman experiences post-gestation is a blood sugar problem. 
We probably all know someone who had postpartum depression. This is the reason. The food supply is already nutrient deficient, and women lose more nutrients than men, all else being equal. Childbirth tips them over the edge. My mother had postpartum depression. I mentioned that I was born with birth defects in the form of dislocated hips and musculoskeletal problems, and that means that I didn't have enough nutrients in the womb. If I didn't have enough, neither did my mother. I was the first child, and my two younger siblings were no better off than I was. My father once told me that after the third childbirth, mother was essentially a shell of her former self. He didn't know what had happened, and he didn't know how to change it or how to reconcile with the woman he once knew. My mother's doctor didn't tell her anything we have covered in this book because he did not know these things. Medical doctors are not required to learn anything about nutrition. They are not required to learn about supplement chemistry. They are not required to take a course on the habits of naturally healthy people. It is not their fault, but it is our responsibility to take care of these things in the absence of a properly educated medical profession. I have seen many women become very upset at some of this information, and I do understand. When we say that type 1 diabetes or Down syndrome or some other problem is a birth defect caused by nutrient deficiencies, I expect a few comments and messages to the effect of, how dare you? Just know that I am not blaming the mothers. Doctors weren't taught this, and I don't expect mothers to know this either. But, now that you know all of this, you cannot unknow it. Together we can prevent these tragedies in the future. Together, we can eradicate congenital problems and defects. Together, we can create a healthier world, and it starts with you. I know that my mother will read these words, for she is easily my biggest supporter. She now knows this message. She does not blame herself, as she shouldn't. And she has used this information to turn her life around. I have never heard her outright admit to her multi-year state of depression, but I have seen the change. She is truly a different woman from the mother I knew growing up. As an added bonus, she no longer has osteoporosis. I know things just got kind of dark here, but we have covered most of what anyone would need to know about health and nutrition. This book was supposed to be about blood sugar, but it is not possible to isolate blood sugar from a broader discussion of health and nutrition. As I said at the beginning, achieving health is the key to achieving healthy blood sugar. The information in this book could be used to conquer practically any health challenge. I chose to darken the tone here because it leads us to the final topic in a well-rounded discussion about health, stress, which we will discuss in the next chapter. Chapter Keys Fatty nutrients are essential and are part of a balanced diet. Fitness does not equal health. Fitness requires more nutrients than rest. No diet can provide all the essential nutrients without supplementation. Diets continue to evolve because none of them are perfect. You do not need to completely avoid carbs, and you definitely should not completely avoid fats. Protein and fat should be prioritized over carbs and sugar on your menu. Increasing dietary fats has numerous benefits for various health problems, particularly blood sugar. Connective tissue is possibly the most neglected nutrient group that we need to consume. Women lose more nutrients than men, but both sexes are responsible for replenishing themselves. Our health is our responsibility, not the responsibility of our doctor. We can not only reverse many of our own health problems, we can also prevent them in our children. Chapter 8. Stress There are many types of stress. Some are obvious, others are not. Some stresses are essential to life, others are detrimental to our health. You don't need to have complete control over all of life's stresses in order to have control over your blood sugar. 
But if you are chronically stressed, you will be chronically unhealthy. And there is at least one major stress that isn't talked about often enough in the health business, which can, for some people, completely prevent them from being healthy. Electromagnetic frequencies, or EMF. EMF is an elephant in the room of a health conversation, but the main problem is that this elephant is invisible. The average medical doctor doesn't take much of the information in this book seriously, and the nutrition world is seen more as a playground than an actual school. Well, if nutrition is the playground, then anyone talking about EMF is in the sandbox, where only the immature pseudoscientists peddle snake oil and gizmos to simple-minded and gullible customers. If nutritionists are the quacking ducks, then energy practitioners are still in the egg. It is very unfortunate that the different modes of healing have very little overlap. Instead of respecting the strengths of each healing philosophy and the methods they use, the health business is split into very distinct camps. I am very lucky to have several years of experience in both the nutrition and energy camps, but I can tell you that this does not make me very popular among the people in either one of them. Nutrition people tend to believe that everything comes down to nutrition, and energy people tend to believe that supplements are synthetic and therefore unnecessary, or even toxic. Due to my problematic birth, I probably wouldn't even have been born if it weren't for emergency medicine. Likely, my mother also would have died attempting to birth me. I have also been totally saved, at least once, by emergency pharmaceutical intervention. I respect the strengths of modern medicine, particularly in emergencies. That is where medical doctors shine. We strongly advocate taking care of yourself through smart nutritional choices so that medical emergencies are limited. We should hardly need medicine if we do nutrition properly on a regular basis. But accidents and infections will still happen, and so there is still room for mainstream medical doctors and their techniques in the medical marketplace. It would be a better world if mainstream medicine paid more attention to the wonders of preventative nutrition and the reversal of chronic problems with nutritional techniques. But it would also be better if those of us in the alternative health world gave more credit where it is due and recognized that although we shine at dealing with chronic problems, particularly blood sugar problems, we do also need emergency interventions to deal with many acute, life-threatening issues. It doesn't really help us to be firmly and immovably only on one side of the fence. This might sound like I am talking to other people in the health business, and though I know some of them will be reading this, really I am talking to you, the consumer. You have been done a great disservice in many ways by the differentiation of health information into various camps. There is a good chance that your doctor told you that supplements are a waste of money and that those nutrition people don't know what they're talking about. And there is also a good chance that someone like me in the alternative world has told you not to use a regular doctor for anything. This black and white thinking isn't helpful. In psychology, this type of thinking is called splitting, and it is actually a marker of more than one mental health problem, namely borderline personality disorder and schizophrenia. All health modalities fall short somewhere. Sometimes people contact us in a state of emergency, and although sometimes we can indeed help them, other times the advice is to go to a hospital or medical doctor. There are very few nutritional strategies that work immediately. Recognizing this as a consumer allows you to use the different healing modes when appropriate, but I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for all of us to come together and agree to share the marketplace amicably. One thing that pretty much all health camps agree on is that stress is a factor in health and disease. Unfortunately, they often don't go into much detail about this, and even more unfortunately, they tend to focus on only one or a few types of stress. 
There are many forms of stress, but for simplicity, I will outline two broad categories, psychological stress and physical stress. Both psychological and physical stress, particularly EMF stress, deserve full books to thoroughly cover the material. But if I leave these things out of this book, you may not see the blood sugar results you are looking for. This chapter will not be sufficient to fully describe or conquer either type of stress. Since stress is such a large part of life, truly conquering it requires dedicated study. Monks don't become stress-free simply because they decide to do so. The discipline requires continuous work and study. Some philosophies and techniques will work better for you than others. Some techniques will work for you at one point in life, but if your life changes a bit, a different technique may become your most convenient. Very few people are completely free of stress, and the rest of us need more than one book or seminar and more than one technique that we can utilize at different times. I will share some of my favorite techniques here, and I will also include my favorite books on the subject in the recommended reading section at the end of the book. Similarly, EMF is a huge topic, and I will only give a brief outline here and encourage you to study it further, again with a couple of my favorite books referenced in the recommended reading section. Physical and psychological stress do tend to go hand in hand. A physical problem is stressful in many ways, especially if you do not know what to do about it. The thought of medical intervention is very stressful, especially if that is the only option you have been given. The thought of missed work, falling short on our responsibilities to our friends and families, and even simply missing out on activities that we enjoy are all stressful. Staying healthy definitely alleviates much unnecessary stress for this reason, avoiding the stresses involved with any pain or illness. Everything in this book so far should do most of the work in avoiding physical stresses and the accompanying psychological stress. Stress in any form has many measurable effects on common markers of health, including blood sugar. The body responds to stress by releasing hormones, including cortisol and adrenaline, as well as lowering insulin, which raises blood sugar temporarily for the fight-or-flight response. The mere presence of the stress hormones in the blood causes muscle and fat tissues to be less sensitive to insulin. In the short term, this is useful, but it is detrimental if this happens all the time. We all know that stress also increases blood pressure. Footnote 27. In our view, blood pressure problems at root tend to be nutrient deficiencies in the ever-important bone-joint-muscle group because blood pressure is governed by muscles. And blood pressure problems can also be caused by a digestive problem. But obviously, stress is a factor as well. Return to text. We all know that stress increases blood pressure, but I recently learned that stress can even increase blood cholesterol. Cholesterol itself is not a problem or a good marker of health, but it is important to note that stress has effects in so many systems in the body, including the fat system. Probably the increased release of cholesterol is there to make more stress hormones. Nutrient deficiencies are a form of physical stress on the cells and on the body itself. A car without power steering fluid or brake fluid is much more difficult to control. A car that hasn't had its oil changed in years will perform much less efficiently than it should. The average person's body is like a poorly maintained vehicle. Our body mileage is terrible. Stay on top of your nutrition and you can eliminate most or all of the everyday aches, pains, headaches, blood sugar spikes and crashes, and more serious debilitating and life-threatening problems. We have gone through a few examples of nutritional stress, oxidative stress, damage to tissues, irritative stress or inflammation to intestinal villi, 
And though we haven't gone too much into the biochemical details of nutrient deficiencies, you can imagine a construction crew without adequate tools. The body will do the best it can with what it has, but it will hardly be optimal. When it comes to EMF, I don't know why it is not taken seriously by either the medical world or the nutrition world. Both camps claim to appreciate science, and there is voluminous science on the matter. We have the tools to see the direct effect of EMF. Live blood analysis doesn't require a medical degree. You can probably find someone near you who will do it for you for less than $100. You can see the effect of many things on the blood in real time, and one of the most obvious and most dramatic effects on the blood is the effect of EMF. In the book, I have shared a picture of unhealthy blood versus healthy blood. The most obvious difference between the two is that the unhealthy blood cells are clumped together and there is a noticeable amount of debris around the cells, whereas in the healthy blood, all of the blood cells are separated and perfectly circular and there is not much debris around them. People sell water filters by showing live blood analysis after drinking tap water compared to their filter water. People sell parasite cleanses and many other health strategies and products based on the ability of that therapy or product to alleviate the blood. In the picture above, I am not even sure what the patient in this case was dealing with before or what they did to clean the blood, but this picture of unhealthy blood is typical of EMF stress. Healthy blood is able to transport nutrients, oxygen, sugar, and waste properly. You will never have healthy blood sugar if your blood looks like the picture of unhealthy blood above. Anything that impacts the blood will greatly impact the person. We sell supplements, but nutrients must get into the blood to be utilized. If they enter the blood, but the blood cells are all crumpled up and stuck together, then those nutrients are not going to be delivered to the cells properly. This means that you can supplement with all 90 essential nutrients and yet still have serious health problems if something is wrong with the blood. To me, this direct proof of EMF impacting the blood is all we need to understand and to do something about the EMF in our lives. Before I even knew about live blood analysis, I had the benefit of being introduced to anti-EMF devices on a business level. In the health business, we have various explanations for why things work, and we can disagree on those reasons. But the bottom line is that we operate on results. If our customers don't get results, we are basically out of business. So from a business perspective, how something works is not as important as the fact that it does work. Whys tend to lead to more whys in an endless regression. I don't know why plants convert minerals to a colloidal form, or why silver or shells kill pathogens. At some point, the magic of the world becomes apparent, and I am satisfied with the rough explanation of the phenomena. A lot of people argue about EMF, and most of it focuses on why. Why do some people have worse symptoms than others? Why are we just noticing this now? Why does my textbook say that non-ionizing radiation is safe? These questions all have answers, but they distract from the obvious fact that there is something happening, however mysterious. Your car salesperson does not need to know how the computer in the vehicle works. They just need to be able to show you how to use it and talk you through the benefits and features of this model over the others available. Similarly, few people know how their phone works, but they can still use it. People tend to get really hung up on the details about EMF, but they really don't need to. I have seen many miracles in both the nutrition and the energy fields, but generally nutrition works gradually to reverse long-term problems. This is excellent, but it also requires patience, commitment, and an ongoing investment for it to really work. Taking a supplement once will likely do nothing at all.
To utilize energy information, the main thing a person needs to do is simply suspend their disbelief that this tinfoil hat stuff might actually help them. Dealing with the EMF stress can have absolutely miraculous results very quickly, and energy devices only need to be purchased once, as they are not consumable like supplements or food. I always have to give some kind of preamble like this before giving EMF advice, or else people tend to just roll their eyes and skip the pages or turn off the video. I've gone into more detail on my experience in this side of the business in my book, Fake Diseases, and have made several videos on the subject on my YouTube channel, The Real Notice. Not everyone is extremely sensitive to EMF, just like not everyone is extremely sensitive to gluten, but everyone is affected by it. And just like the gluten problem is worse in modern foods than it was for our grandparents, the EMF problem is rapidly amplifying. People who didn't feel anything a few years ago are now noticing it. And in the nutrition business, we know that there is a growing number of people who seemingly cannot heal or get rid of a pain no matter what we throw at them. For these cases, the answer isn't more products. These people tend to take plenty of products already, and our products keep getting better over the years. We regularly see results in people who only take a half or quarter of our recommended doses. If our full recommended dose isn't working, then the dose is not the problem. Something is stopping that dose from getting to the cells. And that something is probably EMF. I have been saying this louder and louder over the years, and few people in the nutrition business seem to appreciate it. We are trying to provide answers for people, and I admit that it is not a good look to say, this problem is caused by this nutrient deficiency, and then backtrack and say, unless EMF is actually the underlying problem. There is usually no one singular cause of poor health, just as there is no one singular approach to restoring a person to vibrant health. It's usually a combination of things. We're not lab rats that have had only one of our nutrients pulled out of our pellets, or living on an island all sharing the exact same nutrition. If there is a deficiency on an island, the whole island will be affected similarly. But in the modern world, there are so many new variables and habits available that everyone has a unique combination of problems to address. Having said all of this, there are four main categories of things you can do to reduce the stress of EMF in your life. Some of my advice might sound extreme if this is your first time hearing any of this, and you can choose to implement any of these or none of them, but all of them should help to various degrees. The first strategy is to minimize exposure. For most people, the devices in their immediate vicinity will be their biggest sources of exposure, particularly those kept on the body. This tends to mean your phone, tablet, and laptop computer. If you read the insert of your phone, I'll bet the manufacturer warns you not to put the phone directly to your head. Much like cigarette companies mitigate liability by agreeing to warning labels on their products, Phone companies have always known the risks of EMF and have protected themselves in the fine print. Heed the warning and do not ever put a phone to your head unless it is a landline with a cord. Cordless communication devices of any kind are harmful. Use corded headphones or talk on speaker. If you have to keep a phone on your body for work or another reason, get a protective case, preferably made of silver fabric. Many of them are designed so that you can fully encase the phone in times when you do not need to receive or transmit a signal, and also have a front pouch where your skin is still protected, but the phone can also send and receive signals outwards. Try to never keep a phone on your body or in your bag without some kind of metal protection. At the very least, turn it off when transporting it. EMF affects us most when it is closest to us, 
So rather than the phone being in our pocket, put it on the table or in the glove box of the car. Devices that are not in use should be off at all times. Functions that are not in use should be turned off. If you only use Wi-Fi on your tablet, turn off the Bluetooth and data and turn on airplane mode. I know that people tend to love their Bluetooth devices. I know wires are annoying and that it is convenient to stream podcasts and music rather than plug something in or download it. But the fact is that Bluetooth is one of the worst EMF sources we have ever allowed into our lives. I am sure that the market will recognize this very soon, and there will be an exodus away from these devices as soon as people realize how much it is affecting them and their families. I see a lot of apparently health-conscious people using wireless headphones and other Bluetooth devices, even while jogging or working out. These people probably wouldn't eat at a fast food restaurant, they probably wouldn't smoke or take drugs, and I assume that they'll stop using Bluetooth once they realize that the harm is probably much worse than fast food or drugs. Most of the damage that bad foods and chemicals do to our body is immediate and acute, meaning the damage happens mostly right now, not later, and damage should not last longer than the time the thing is in the body. If we habitually eat those foods or use those chemicals, the damage will accumulate and a degenerative problem will become apparent. Though the harm from EMF is also immediate and acute, the exposure is constant. We don't eat cheeseburgers all day and night or smoke literally all day, but we can be affected by EMF 24-7. This makes it a much bigger problem than the cheeseburger. Remember that convenience generally isn't healthy. There is nothing healthy at a convenience store, and there are also no electronics that are healthy. I'm not saying we have to ditch all electronics, but it is definitely a good idea to get rid of the worst offenders and to pressure the market to install safety measures in their products, as well as engineer safer electronics in general. If you go to a McDonald's restaurant in Europe, you will be surprised that their menu is significantly healthier than it is in North America, and also that it isn't as cheap. That's because the European market has demanded these changes, and they are willing to pay a bit more for a better product. So far, there is next to zero demand for any electronics manufacturers or telecommunications providers to do anything regarding the safety of their products. It is best to simply get rid of all possible wireless devices, especially all Bluetooth devices. Sell them, recycle them, whatever you are comfortable with. I don't recommend donating them to a thrift store. Most of the people who shop at the Salvation Army have enough problems as it is, and they don't need more unhealthy things keeping them down, much like they don't need junk food from a food bank. I realize that some of these devices are quite expensive, but we have probably all wasted more money in life than we care to acknowledge, and sometimes we need to just swallow a loss. You don't need a wireless keyboard or mouse, and your desktop computer should be plugged into an Ethernet cable instead of running off Wi-Fi, which is faster and more reliable internet anyway. If you use a laptop, it should not be on your lap, and you should be using a desk, as it is better for your posture and for actually getting work done. Plug it into Ethernet and turn off the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. I run a business online, and I spend a lot of time on the phone and computer, but I've done my best to minimize the EMF involved. Life is full of trade-offs, and in my life this is a big one, because I realize that I need to make a living, and I prefer working from home to life on the road or some other way of attracting customers, but I know that being on these devices is bad for my health. For several years I have not paid a phone bill. One reason is that I am cheap and I don't want to pay for unnecessary things, but also so that I can have airplane mode turned on all the time, which means that my phone is no longer sending out a signal looking for a mobile tower to connect to. 
By the way, the farther away you are from a mobile or data tower, the stronger the signal your phone puts out looking for one. So if you're out in nature, you probably want to turn the phone off or turn airplane mode on and data and Bluetooth signals off at the minimum. Since the first smart consumer device came out in 2007, the iTouch, none of us have needed to pay a phone bill in order to make phone calls and texts for free. You can download any one of at least dozens of apps that exist for free calls and texts. Most of us communicate primarily on social media apps anyway. If you have an iPhone, the built-in iMessage and FaceTime features do not require mobile cell service, which means a phone bill. Because I don't have a phone bill, airplane mode is always turned on, and the data button is always turned off. I don't own any Bluetooth devices, and so Bluetooth is always off. If I am not using the phone, it is nowhere near my body. I do pay for cable internet in my house. When I sit down in the morning and answer the many messages in our inboxes, I turn off the phone's Wi-Fi and plug the phone into an Ethernet adapter, which only costs me around $15. After the main phone time, if I use the phone at some other point in the day, I will usually use the Wi-Fi, but the overall time on the Wi-Fi is greatly reduced. Of course, you can also turn your Wi-Fi modem off when you are not using it, especially at night. You also don't want to sleep with the phone or any wireless devices in your room. Get an old school alarm clock. You should know that your car is probably also a major source of EMF, new cars especially. My previous car was a 2009 model, and I didn't feel a big problem with it. My current car is a 2011, and it exhausts me just sitting in it, probably because the Bluetooth doesn't turn off. I don't drive very often these days, but I'm still planning to get a much older vehicle on my next purchase, with as little electronics as possible. Since your car is made of metal, even if it isn't sending out a wireless signal of its own, it is trapping some of the signals from your phone and other devices in there with you. Turn the devices off while in the car, or at least turn off the wireless functions so it is not sending out those signals. You can load your GPS directions on your phone and turn the signals off, and it will still take you to your destination. I have driven across America multiple times without internet, and most of us grew up without the luxury of GPS anyway. We somehow managed to find the places and meet the people. You can buy an EMF meter to find major sources of EMF in your home. But I know that most people only use the meter once, and in that case it is not really worth the investment. You can call your local fire department, and chances are, if you ask nicely, they will send a firefighter over for free to help you identify any sources with their meter. This will probably only take about 30 minutes, and much less if you live in an apartment. You can also ask an electrician if you know one personally, or pay one for a house call. Once you identify major sources, you can either get rid of those, or use the second EMF reducing strategy, blocking or shielding. A shield can be made of basically anything metal. Aluminum foil and baking sheets are the cheapest options, though they are definitely not the most aesthetic. EMF blocking paint is available, but is much more expensive than foil and is not as effective as foil or a sheet of metal. If you have EMF coming in from a source outside, it might only be in one corner of the house, and that is easy to block. We are in the process of having our smart meter removed from our house, but the first thing I did when we moved in was cover the wall behind it in several layers of foil, then put a bookshelf in front of that. Similarly, my office shares a wall with my bedroom, and so I foiled that wall and covered the wall with fabric, both to hide the foil and to improve sound recording quality in the office. Refrigerators and freezers, when the compressor is running, are a big source of EMF that hardly anyone recognizes. 
If there is a bedroom or a sitting chair on the other side of the wall where your fridge is, consider shielding that wall. I would like to elaborate on the many problems with modern lighting, but it will take us too far off track. LED, halogen, and fluorescent lights are all a problem, both for EMF and for a more subtle irritation of our minds by their rapidly flickering nature and harsh light. I consider this both a physical and a psychological stress. Unfortunately, many places have banned conventional incandescent bulbs, but I recommend that all household and office lighting be conventional incandescent. The major sources of EMF are definitely able to mess up the blood to the point where your nutrition is practically void. This means that EMF could appear to cause many different health problems, including blood sugar problems. Crumpled up blood can't transport sugar effectively. LED or fluorescent lights are probably not going to affect your blood sugar in a meaningful way, certainly not in comparison to the phone in your pocket, Wi-Fi in the workplace, and the brand new car on the daily commute. These lights are still an annoyance and a minor source of EMF stress in our lives. If you wear glasses, I recommend getting the lens upgrades that block blue light. Similar screens can be purchased cheaply for any phone, tablet, or computer screen, and some versions are available for televisions. In the shield category are also the phone cases mentioned above, as well as silver fabric clothing. A few years ago, there were really no great brands that I could recommend, but the market is quickly catching up to this demand, and now several companies are offering fabrics that feel good and also don't look like metal ponchos or a space suit. Footnote 28. My current favorite is Spiro Protection Clothing. SpiroProtectionClothing.com Return to text. The smartest clothing items to purchase first are underwear and undershirts, as you can obviously wear your normal clothing on top of it without replacing your entire wardrobe. The third category of EMF reduction strategies is to use mitigating devices. When I was introduced to this business, devices were our main tool. Of course, we cannot run a business from most of the things above, as they are free for you to do yourself. The plain fact is that even with reducing your personal exposure and blocking sources in your home, you are still going to be exposed to EMF. And many people don't have total control over their environment. Your family might not let you turn off the Wi-Fi, for example. Not to mention the workplace, which is probably high EMF, as workplaces generally pay no attention to this. There is no magic device that will completely protect you from EMF. None of these strategies will completely mitigate EMF, but using as many of them as possible will reduce your exposure nonetheless. Even though no device is the total savior, I have seen absolute miracles with them. People with diseases and symptoms that I would have previously thought were entirely nutritional problems were sometimes alleviated in minutes by using one of our devices. This is because if the blood is impacted, it can show up as symptoms in any system in the body, since the blood delivers nutrients to every cell in the body. A disease is just a name for a symptom or group of symptoms, and there is no predicting which system will be affected first or most strongly by EMF. I am not going to go into great detail here, for I know that I have already gone long on this section, but you should know about the two main types of EMF protection devices. The first type are materials that are charged with frequencies, or have frequencies embedded into them, however you like to think about it. This is my favorite type of device because it is relatively inexpensive, very effective, and can last a lifetime. The device I have the most experience with is something we call a frequency tuning disc which is basically a brass washer charged with a bunch of frequencies that are found in your body. The theory is that these frequencies enhance your own frequencies, thus strengthening your aura. 
We don't really know if this itself protects you from the EMF, or if it just strengthens you while not doing anything about the EMF you are still exposed to. I personally don't think it changes the EMF you are exposed to. It changes you. Either way, they work very well, and they are the cheapest devices I know of on the market. Cheapest that actually work. We sell them at www.wallexwarriors.ca. There are several materials that will hold frequencies very well, and brass is one of them. Many products sold in this category are some kind of crystal or stone with embedded frequencies. I do sell a pendant on my website as well, but it costs much more than a frequency tuning disc. And it is not as practical because most people don't want to wear a necklace in bed or in the shower, but a disc can be worn 24-7, even at work with a dirty job. The second category of EMF protection device is something that actually outputs frequencies into the atmosphere. Generally, I don't like these as much, because they usually have to be plugged in, and therefore are most useful in the location where they are stationed. We humans move around, and so I prefer a simple device that stays with us. I definitely haven't tried every device in this category, and the ones that I have used I am not overly impressed with. I do hear good things about the Blue Shield company, and they are next on my list to try though their products are much costlier than everything mentioned to this point. The fourth category of things to do to reduce your EMF exposure is political in nature. Most of the things mentioned so far are in your control, but we live in a society that is rapidly drowning us in this invisible rainbow of EMF. We need action on a level bigger than our personal lives, and that means political action. I understand why people in the health business really don't want to accept the scale of the problem we are facing here because it takes us largely out of the picture. In general, the message of this book, and our field more broadly, is that you can control your health. You can change eating habits and add supplements or herbs or whatever. You can move your body more and reduce or eliminate bad habits. It can be a fairly long list, but it's doable. You can also use the above strategies to reduce your EMF exposure, but basically no one can fully escape the EMF in our environment. I can help you with your nutrition, and a doctor can help you with an emergency situation, but none of us can protect you from the cell phone tower across the street or the high-voltage power line down the road. If you live next to a cell tower or high-voltage lines, or you live above a subway line or near an electric transfer station, frankly, you have to move. None of the above will mitigate such major sources. That is terrible news for you, and for us. It really sucks to have to give this advice but it is the truth that you'll probably never be healthy if you remain in these places. Similarly, some workplaces, like airports, hospitals, and even schools, have willingly become some of the strongest EMF environments that most people will ever spend significant time in. For the most part, I assume that the people in charge of developing these places do not appreciate the dangers involved, and that has to change. This is why I encourage you to learn more about EMF and actively spread this information, we must influence the world to change. We can control our own nutrition, but as of now, we cannot control the EMF we are exposed to. I could fill a whole book on EMF, but I will stop for now, and we will get back to the psychological stresses and some easy things that can mitigate that. In the digestion chapter, I mentioned that a few deep breaths can basically relax you immediately, and that is something that any of us can do at any time. One of the key parts to the 90 essential nutrients is oxygen. Footnote 29. The 60 essential minerals are actually the 60 essential elements, as some, like oxygen and nitrogen, are gases. 
Though we call calcium a mineral, technically we are talking about calcium the element when we are discussing its roles in the body. A rock might be called a mineral, which will be made of numerous elements. A rock or a crystal is a compound of elements. Similarly, a rock form of calcium, such as calcium carbonate, is a compound of calcium, carbon, and oxygen. This compound is properly described as a mineral. When chemistry is described atomically, there isn't a fundamental difference between the matter that makes up oxygen and the matter that makes iron. The same base constituents make all matter. The only real differences between elements, as far as modern chemistry and practical physics is concerned, are the amount of electrons and the weight of the element. It boggles my mind to think about the idea that oxygen and iron are basically the same. One just has a bit more energy particles and is heavier. Return to text. One of the key parts of the 90 essential nutrients is oxygen, and one of the easiest ways to increase our oxygen is simply to breathe more deeply more often. When you start to pay attention to it, you'll probably notice that you only fill your lungs halfway before breathing out. Therefore, there is half a lung of stagnant air that you are not fully recycling. Deep breathing is good for body and mind and should be done as much as possible every day. As you do it more often, you'll probably notice that you want to do it more often. Your body tells you, hey, I like this, more oxygen please. You'll probably also notice that you stop breathing completely rather often. Doctors have this made-up disease called sleep apnea, which is the cessation of breathing at night. Not only is this a completely normal behavior for all mammals and isn't in any way a health problem, sleep problems are unrelated to apnea, it also happens frequently during the day. Maybe it's because sleep clinics don't study people during the day, or maybe it's because no one in the medical world bothered to question this, but for some reason your doctor probably doesn't know that apnea is normal day and night. And it probably happens more frequently when you are stressed. I notice myself not breathing pretty much every time I am stressed. The fast remedy to this is simply to pay attention and breathe deeply. One of my favorite stress-relieving activities is something called qi. Not tai qi, which includes conscious body movements. I am sure tai qi is also helpful. I hear great things. But I have never learned it, so I can't tell you much about it. Plain Qi is one of the simplest forms of meditation. Very basically, you stand up straight in whatever way is comfortable to you, close your eyes, and let your whole body relax. Just standing there, as long as you don't resist it, your body should actually start to move on its own. It might rock back and forth, or start to swing itself around gently in circles, and you're supposed to let it do this. Sometimes it will twist itself until something pops. And whatever it does, we should trust the wisdom of the body to do whatever it wants to do when it is in this chi mode. I am no expert on this, but I quickly got over the weirdness of it and learned to enjoy just standing there. Maybe I feel better about it since it has a real name and a history behind it. I'm not doing nothing. I'm doing chi. I like to deep breathe at the same time, doubling up the benefits of this time away from the stresses of life. Focusing on breathing pulls you away from thinking about all the other stuff in life. Many of us simply don't ever take a real break. We stop working, but then we watch TV, or hang out with friends, or talk to our loved ones, and none of that is really off. Chi is truly stopping everything, closing the eyes, and letting the body relax itself in whatever way it wants. Exercise is commonly touted as one of the best ways to reduce stress. I have never been a huge fan of full-on exercise. I am a workaholic, I admit it, but I am also quite lazy in many ways, and one of those ways is my reluctance to go to the gym. 
Despite this, I know that we must move. We are designed to move. And as someone who sits for a living, I know I must put time in each day to circulate the fluids in my body. There are many circulation supporting things that you can do that are not really true exercises, but that provide many of the physical and psychological benefits of exercise. You can move your fluids and push your muscles without going to the gym, and all of these things will take you away momentarily from the stresses of life. Yoga is a simple set of light stretch type exercises that anyone can do. Without yoga, it is still a good idea to stretch throughout the day. As a sitter, I spend somewhere around 20 to 40 minutes throughout the day just stretching and swinging my arms around. You should also know that our muscles atrophy if we do not use them. If we sit for a living, our biggest muscles, those in the butt and legs, will be most affected by our sedentary lifestyle. It is important to stretch those muscles regularly. Though I am a huge fan of simple circulation exercises, it is also important to keep muscles on our bodies. The primitive long-lived people, in addition to eating real food, getting a lot of micronutrients, and avoiding the modern stresses of EMF and traffic and so on, they also remain mostly fit and toned throughout life. This was observed in the famously healthy Hunza people, as well as the many primitive cultures documented by Weston Price in his work, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. In my observation at modern gyms, health and fitness did not have anything to do with each other. But in the primitive human community, health and fitness are both natural consequences of their lifestyles. The children in primitive communities run around. If they live in the mountains, they build muscle by traversing the rocky terrain. If they live by the water, they swim. They climb trees to get coconuts and avocados and other tree treasures. All long-lived cultures work. Both men and women typically work the fields during planting and harvesting season. The woman's work is much more than just cooking and cleaning. Those are the easy jobs. She will likely do much of the wood splitting and tending the fires, skinning animals for furs and leathers, grinding bones, tending a garden of herbs and roots and other vegetables, and much more. She doesn't have time to watch TV, and she probably doesn't have a couch to lounge on. Men will have a lot of work to do too and most of it will require a lot of movement. Their additional activities will also likely be physically demanding, like hunting goats in the mountains, fish in the ocean, and even trapping small game like rabbits and foxes can all be very tiring. The point is that a healthy lifestyle, especially if we are basing it on long-lived humans, definitely includes exercise. These primitive people don't sit around much. They might hibernate for most of a winter and nap in the afternoon, but the rest of the time is full of movement and lifting. They're not running marathons or stopping into a gym for some weight training after work, but they're exercising a lot of the time. For this reason, an active lifestyle is optimal. Slow but steady is best, in my opinion. People who work construction don't run in and start hammering things. Slower and steadier gets the job done efficiently and safely. Weightlifting is great, as it is the most efficient way to maintain a healthy muscle mass. I cannot go into a full exercise regimen here, but I do recommend doing whatever you can to add or keep movement in your life, especially things that stimulate muscles. When it comes to blood sugar, there is a commonly talked about link between muscle mass and blood sugar problems. More muscle, healthier blood sugar. I think a lot of this correlation is because a lot of diabetics are older people who do live very sedentary lives. Lightweight training will benefit these people in numerous ways, and might even help with their blood sugar. Light swimming and cycling are also both excellent ways to keep the muscles working, and even walking helps a lot. 
People with serious health problems, especially blood sugar problems, should not neglect circulation. Exercise and circulation are related but different. Exercise will typically be focused on working the muscles or the heart, not necessarily the lymphatic fluids in the body. I can weight train efficiently without sweating much or even moving much. Isolated muscle exercises restrict and slow movement. Cardio training will move the lymph, but will not have much to do with muscle growth. I prefer a mix of moderate weight training, 3-5 to five hours per week, lots of stretching, and some deliberate circulation exercises daily. We know that circulation problems are correlated with blood sugar problems, and so we need to go out of our way to promote blood and lymph circulation in our bodies. Find a circulation exercise or two that you can fit into your life easily. 20 to 40 minutes a day is my general recommendation for whatever exercise or combination of exercises you choose. If you lift weights, this is in addition to your gym routine. You can buy a small trampoline and bounce on it periodically. If you have access to a swing set, you can use that. Make sure that you swing high enough where you feel the rushing whoosh on the way down, because that feeling is your fluids moving. Swimming is also excellent for circulation, and I like it because it is low impact, meaning it doesn't beat up your joints like running. Cycling is also low impact. Anything that gets the blood moving is good, though some of these are more practical than others, and those of us who live in wintry places will not be able to do all of these throughout the year. There are also machines that promote circulation. Two of my favorites are chi machines, with no relation to the chi practice already mentioned, and shaker machines. A chi machine is basically just a machine that you put your feet into while laying down, and it rocks your legs back and forth in a rhythmic motion. I recommend 10-minute sessions two or more times a day if you have a serious circulation or blood sugar problem. Chi machines can sell for as little as $50 or as much as a few hundred. Just read the reviews and specs and make sure that it can hold your weight and won't break after a week. A shaker machine is just a platform that shakes. A cheap model will probably cost you a few hundred dollars, and they can go up to a few thousand. More expensive models will have a broader range of shaking settings and probably a better warranty. 20 minutes a day is a good target for the shaker machine. When people come to us with blood sugar problems, they often have serious circulation problems. They tend to have trouble walking or even standing for very long. They have numb or painful extremities, including their feet. This means that using these machines or doing some of these exercises can be painful for them at first. And they might not be able to bounce on a trampoline or ride a swing at all. If this is the case, use the lowest setting on the shaker machine and work your way up. Continued use of these devices should see major improvements within days or weeks. If they can only tolerate short sessions on the chi or shaker machine, that is okay. Shorter sessions are fine as long as the total time per day is reached. There are also several electric stimulation machines, such as the Dr. Ho machine. Many people report tremendous results with these machines, and they can be particularly useful for those who are in really rough shape, such as people in wheelchairs or who have gangrenous feet. There are also several circulation therapies that require another person, and usually require paying for. These include massage, especially lymphatic massage, as well as acupuncture, acupressure, and cupping. Though I do not go to the gym often these days, and I did mention that my health was at a dismal low when I worked at a gym, I still recognize that it is a healthy thing to do. My wife forces me to work out with her sometimes, and while I don't like to admit it, I know that I should do it more consistently. I like to believe that stretching and circulating is enough, 
but I know that it is not, if we don't have an active lifestyle. Proper weight or resistance training doesn't take very much time or even exertion. And on top of that, gyms are generally an excellent social environment, especially if your other go-to options are something like a pub or playing video games with your friends. I met many absolutely amazing people at the gym. And even in the midst of depression, some of the best times of my life were in the gym. The last major thing in this section I would like to cover is sleep. Sleep also deserves its own book, and I've listed my current favorite book on the subject in the recommended reading section. Sleep and stress have a lot to do with each other. Stress can mess up sleep, and a lack of sleep is physically and psychologically stressful. Insomnia at the bottom line is mostly a deficiency in the bone mineral group that comes up again and again in relation to literally hundreds of health problems and diseases. That mineral group governs muscles, and sleep is essentially a muscle problem. I said mostly because, of course, your mind can keep you awake as well. And there are also several digestive and blood sugar symptoms that can mess up your sleep and be mistaken for insomnia. At the beginning of the book, I mentioned several sleep problems related to blood sugar. Narcolepsy, night sweats, teeth grinding at night, night terrors, waking up to urinate, sleep walking, and bedwetting. If you fall asleep randomly, narcolepsy, then you are not getting a regular, restorative sleep. If you have to wake up to change your shirt or sheets because they are soaked in sweat, that will prevent a thorough, restorative sleep. And it is the same with waking up to urinate or waking up from nightmares. As you get your blood sugar under control with the methods in this book, these symptoms should improve and they can all disappear completely. I included sleep here after the EMF section because the sleep literature, and medical and nutritional literature in general, tends to ignore the whole concept of EMF. In my life, EMF is the main thing that interferes with my sleep. At my country house, I tend to sleep perfectly. I'm writing this just outside of Houston, Texas where I spend about half of my time these days, and I've never had a proper sleep here. When I visit my mother's in a suburb outside of Toronto, Canada, I cannot sleep there either. I have all of the anti-EMF devices that we promote and some others that I haven't mentioned. I take almost double the amount of supplements that I normally need to function properly in the country, but as I have said, nothing can fully mitigate the effects of a high EMF area. Cities large and small have a bubble of EMF that is impossible to escape. Even covering the house in aluminum foil would simply trap us in a Faraday cage, like your car, where the EMF from our devices would just bounce around inside. Poor sleep quickly ricochets throughout life. Once I leave the countryside, I quickly become irritable and have a harder time concentrating on my work and business. This causes me stress. I don't enjoy being a jerk to my mother or wife, Yet I feel like one when I am in a bad mood from being constantly tired yet unable to relax or sleep through the night. I also like to get my work done, and it causes stress when I don't feel physically up to it. Messages pile up, video projects and books sit unfinished, and none of this makes me feel good. Even with no electronic devices in the bedroom, EMF messes up my sleep when I'm in a city, and it also messes up my blood sugar. I do sweat at night here, not all the time, but often enough. I get up at night to urinate. Within a few days at my house in the country, none of this happens. The irritability is a sign of low blood sugar, as is the chronic fatigue. When I'm in a city, I can't enjoy a coffee in the early afternoon like I want to, because I need to be extra diligent toward anything that makes the problem worse. Advice that we would normally give to anyone trying to get their blood sugar under control, such as limiting caffeine, I have to be extra on top of.
Normally I say that you can break some of the rules sometimes and get away with it. You don't have to be perfect to be better, and you definitely don't have to be perfect to get your blood sugar under control. But in this high EMF environment, I feel no room for error. Not everyone is as sensitive to EMF as I am, but plenty of people are much more sensitive than me. You might be one of them and not even know it. You might do everything in this book except the EMF advice and get no result. You also might address only the EMF and see remarkable improvements in your life. Addressing nutrition, digestion, and EMF is my recommended recipe for a healthy life. Most of the sleep books I have read will indeed list several of the essential nutrients as things that help with sleep. I put quotes around help because I think that it is silly to think of essential nutrients like this. Like thinking taurine and arginine, or the B vitamins, help with energy. These nutrients are required for healthy energy and healthy sleep. All of the essential nutrients are required for a healthy body, and so it doesn't make sense to pick them out individually as helping with certain problems. When a book about sleep gives you 7 or 12 different nutrients that help with sleep, you have been done a disservice. If you go out and buy each of those, you might end up with 10 different products, and invariably you will still be far short of all 90 essential nutrients. These books will also commonly name several plants that are known to promote sleep, like chamomile flower or valerian root, as well as hormones like melatonin. The problem is, we don't want to be reliant on medicines. Anything that is being used to treat a problem is a medicine, whether it is a plant or a pharmaceutical. If you have a sleep problem and use a herb or melatonin, you are ignoring the real problem, nutritional deficiencies causing the sleep problem, or EMF messing everything up. Most medicines have quickly diminishing returns if they are used long-term, because they are not meant to be used long-term. People need to take more and more melatonin to get to sleep because the body becomes tolerant to most medicines. Similarly, many people use alcohol or marijuana to get to sleep, also with diminishing returns. Medicines are often expensive and will never truly fix the problem, unless the problem is caused by an infection that is killed by the medicine. The same is true with herbs and roots that are known to support healthy blood sugar, and any plant touted for any medicinal benefit. We have a blood sugar support product that is meant to be added onto a baseline dose of the 90 essential nutrients. And on the label, there are some plants that are known to support healthy blood sugar, including cinnamon, ginseng, bitter melon fruit, as well as the two key minerals for insulin metabolism, chromium and vanadium. Those plants are indeed helpful in maintaining healthy blood sugar, but many people take medicinal benefits too far and use too much turmeric or cinnamon or ginseng to the point where it can actually be harmful. Plant medicines aren't the answer to blood sugar problems or sleep problems, and the point of this is that by becoming healthy in general, we really shouldn't need any medicines or hormones to help us sleep or to have healthy blood sugar. We can usually sleep fine when we are properly nourished, and our body produces its own melatonin, once again from cholesterol. The body can get glucose into cells if it has enough chromium and vanadium to do so, assuming their many cofactors are also present, and cinnamon and ginseng can help, but they are not the key. Though nutrition is most of what is required for healthy sleep, there are several basic guidelines commonly recommended to improve sleep, and I do believe in them as well. If you had a terrible sleep, don't sleep in. Get up at the regular time and proceed with your day. You will be tired that day, but keeping on a schedule is very important for a regular healthy sleep. Exercise is commonly touted as one of the best ways to ensure good sleep. 
I recommend that you exercise in the morning or afternoon at latest, as evening exercises can leave you buzzing with energy well into the night. If you are laying in bed for hours, frustrated that you are not sleeping, I recommend getting up, leaving the bedroom, and reading or watching TV until you feel more tired or ready to try sleep again. A book is definitely healthier than TV, but I know how frustrating and exhausting it can be to miss many nights of proper sleep, and I often don't feel like reading in that state. Most sleep experts do not recommend associating entertainment with your bedroom. The bedroom should be a place of sleep. I don't believe a television should even be allowed in a bedroom anyway, for EMF reasons. Many people believe that screens are bad for our sleep, and I agree. Generally, it is a good idea to put the screens down before bed, just like you don't want to eat or drink alcohol before bed. But TV does make me tired, and a lot of people have an easy time falling asleep while watching it. Phones are a much worse option for this late night watching, both because it tends to be in your hand, pumping you with EMF, and because of the close blue light, which is stimulating in a bad way. I wear lenses that block blue lights and also have a blue light filter on my phone, but it is still not a good idea to use the phone if you are having trouble falling asleep. Books are better than anything electronic. This should be more than enough to relieve a lot of the stress in the average life. But of course, if your life is very stressful, then it is up to you to continue to study stress management, mindfulness, and the huge market of techniques that you can use to help you. If you want money, study money. If you want happiness, study happiness. If you want a life with less stress, then this must be studied as well. Chapter keys: Stress can be physical, psychological, or both. EMF stress can fundamentally prevent the blood from doing its job. You can minimize your EMF exposure and block some sources, and use certain mitigating devices. You can also participate politically in reducing EMF in our environment. We must promote circulation in our bodies. Circulation and exercise are different; both are important. Good sleep is key to well-being. Good sleep is a result of good nutrition and health, not sleep aids or medicines. To really gain control of the stresses of life requires study and dedication, long term. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May seventeenth. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do.、It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile. dot com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Chapter nine: The bottom line. All blood sugar problems could be eliminated on Earth if we, as a species, recognize the facts in this book. All of this information is already public knowledge. Type one diabetes could be eliminated in one generation if the medical world took the idea of preconception nutrition seriously 
instead of waiting until a woman misses two menstrual periods to begin prenatal nutrient formulas. Childhood diabetes would never occur if parents were informed about the foods to avoid, especially grains and processed sugar, and were given formulas with all of the essential nutrients in them, like the family dog. Likewise, obesity and the growing list of behavioral diseases could fade from memory if we stopped eating the foods that caused them and gave ourselves the same proportion of micronutrients to macronutrients that we already put in animal foods. We can control the occurrence of blood sugar problems in our animals because we basically control their entire lives. They don't get to choose to have a beer before bed or sift out the nutrients in their formulated foods. Humans have the freedom to choose what they put in or don't put in their bodies, and I do believe that we would make better choices on the whole if this information were more widely known. In just a few years, practically every grocery store in America has a gluten-free section. Once people have information, the market can respond quickly. If we stopped managing health problems with medicines instead of conquering them with intelligent nutritional strategies, we would eliminate the need for most medical care. This book hardly mentioned medications because they have nothing to do with conquering most health problems. Insulin doesn't even need to be dispensed by a doctor. Insulin is a hormone, and you can buy other hormones, such as vitamin D, melatonin, and progesterone at the grocery store or pharmacy. I know it is slightly rude for me to continue to say, you need all 90 essential nutrients, yet not give you an actual product recommendation. Unfortunately, the laws around health information and corresponding product recommendations are quite tricky, and I do not want to get our supplement company in trouble. In the end notes section, I listed all 90 essential nutrients, but it would be highly impractical or impossible for you to try and add up the doses of each nutrient if I gave you the recommended doses. You don't need to memorize the list, you just need to use products that have the whole groups of nutrients. All 60 essential minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, and 2 omegas. Since there are so many essential nutrients, and so many other nutrients not strictly considered essential that we include in products anyway, like probiotics or coenzyme Q10, it will never be practical for you to buy them individually. We bundle them together as much as possible, and all 90 plus many other nutrients can be attained in as little as 2 products. Most of our products are designed optimally for one month use for 100 pounds of body weight. I have said that we regularly get great results with people who take much less than our recommended dose, and that is the truth, but the full dose is much more reliable. If you have a blood sugar problem, adding what we call a blood sugar support product containing chromium and vanadium in an absorbable form is a very good idea. You may not need to stay on it forever, but it is the main way we deliver more of the nutrients required for healthy blood sugar. The legal way to talk about a health strategy is to support and promote maintenance and repair of healthy blood sugar, or a healthy liver, or whatever system you have a problem in. This language removes us from the words treat and cure, which are not legally appropriate. Instead of treating something, we support that thing under the theory that the body can maintain and repair itself when it is given the correct materials and correct environment to do so. On our website, wallaxwarriors.ca, we have many products and packages listed. You can see packages that have all 90 essential nutrients, some of them that have 89, missing the omega-6, and you can choose products based on your budget and the stated spectrum of nutrients in the products. Liquids in general are cheaper than powders, but most of us prefer the powders because they are more convenient, more complete overall, and tend to taste better. 
If you are very overweight, the liquids will probably be best to start with, as the dose is more important than taste or convenience, and cost tends to be the most important factor for heavier people. On our website, you will also see a blood sugar support section. I intend this book to remain valid for my lifetime and beyond, but the names of products and companies are liable to change. For now, you can clearly see which add-on blood sugar support products you can use to boost the specific nutrients required for blood sugar, on top of the baseline 90 essential nutrients. We offer to help you find what is best for you, give you our regular food and salt advice in point form, and see if there is anything weird about your case, such as a missing gallbladder, or a drug that can really interfere with the process of getting healthy, or a shellfish allergy. We ask that you contact us. And we will give you our questionnaire, followed by our best advice, for free. Our contact information is in the more section of this book, in the description of the video or audio that you're listening to. If you use the general food rules in this book, you are halfway there to achieving healthy blood sugar. Supplements are relatively easy to do, just buy them and consume them. But the food changes tend to take time and effort to implement. Health will not come from supplements alone, or food alone. And this is why we have set up our food accounts and published a cookbook to help you implement all of our suggestions. We will give you our best advice regarding cooking and purchasing foods for free, and you can contact our food accounts anytime. All of those accounts are listed in the more section and in the description of the video or audio. Health is a commitment, and as long as you are on this journey of improvement, we are there to help you. Some people turn their health around very quickly and are given permission by their doctors to stop their medications. Other people require more coaching. Whatever your level of determination is, we are committed to continuously helping you. Results can happen fast, but it's best not to expect to see results right away. Some people can turn things around much faster than others, but don't give up if they still don't occur after several months. There may be something impacting your health that doesn't show up on our initial questionnaire. We weren't able to cover some of the more obscure things that can affect your health, such as an infected root canal or chronic mold exposure. These things won't matter for the average person. But the point for you is to continue to try to be healthy, and hopefully you will find the things that are keeping you down and remove them. If you feel that this book has helped you understand the underlying causes of blood sugar problems and health problems in general, then I ask you to share this book. The world is waking up to many of these concepts, but it is not happening fast enough. We can all do our part in creating a healthier world, and it starts with information and understanding. If you have achieved results with these strategies, I would appreciate your testimonial. I share testimonials on our social media accounts, and they do make a difference. People often don't have confidence in information until they see others who have benefited from it. We have covered everything you should know about healthy blood sugar. And for now, I bid you a farewell, and I wish you a long, healthy life. Thank you. Epilogue Epigenetics I have discounted the role of genetics in human health, and I should elaborate on this. It is well established that genes do not act on their own. Modern science still has no clue what most genetic material actually does. The amount of genes in an organism is insufficient to explain the complexity or intelligence or resilience of the organism, because less complex and intelligent creatures can have a lot more genes than us, and in any case, science still doesn't know what most genetic material actually does. It's been a while since I've seen the term junk DNA in the press or in new books, 
but the reason for this term still exists. Researchers believed that most DNA was junk, because they didn't know what it did. It is now common understanding that the environment of the organism, or the individual cell being studied, are not what determine genetic expression. The term genetic expression implies that genes can express themselves or not, or they can turn on or off. Genes are not a light switch, but our human metaphors seem under-equipped to describe gene function and cell division and so on. Genes can be active or not, and they can be dysfunctional or damaged. What damages genes? The same things that damage other tissues. Free radicals, other toxins and poisons, radiation, etc. These facts are so mainstream now that I don't need to provide a citation. The study of how environmental factors, nutrition, chemicals, stress, etc. affect gene expression is called epigenetics. Your health and longevity has almost nothing to do with your genes, and almost everything to do with the environment that your genes are exposed to. Genes do not act on their own. You can put a bunch of genes in a petri dish, feed them whatever you want, and nothing will happen. Genes are part of the cell. They are one of the many organs of the cell. We do not fully understand how a cell works, or how DNA or RNA work, and that is okay. We do not need to understand how the phone works in order to use the phone. When we talk about the 90 essential nutrients, the word essential refers to essential for maximum genetic expression. Every organism will have a maximum lifespan, and it will require all of the essential nutrients to do so. If they have most of the essential nutrients, they will probably still have a long and healthy life, but will not reach their maximum genetic potential for lifespan. The cells of the organism will continually regenerate themselves, but over time, damage from free radicals, which occurs in every living organism, will accumulate, and small mistakes in replication will happen over time. In the human body, the cells of different tissues and systems regenerate at different speeds. Some tissues stay around longer than others. Faster replicating tissues are more likely to make mistakes in replication over time, and overall this natural, gradual degeneration accounts for aging. Some organisms have very fast metabolisms, heartbeat, and actions, such as hummingbirds and mice, and these animals do not live very long. Slower animals generally live a lot longer than fast animals. Think of the tortoise and the elephant. And though I am not a biologist, I assume that these creatures will also generally have tissue cells that regenerate relatively slowly. Some people even go as far as to speculate that all hearts have a limited number of beats. Faster beats reaches the end faster and these animals do not live long. I do not believe in a fixed number of heartbeats, but I do know that the heart requires nutrients to beat, and the blood requires nutrients to maintain its viscosity, and so on. A healthier heart will certainly beat longer. The aging process itself doesn't seem to have much to do with genetics. It has much more to do with the type of animal you are, how much you beat up your body, and if enough nutrients are available for repair. You will appear to age less rapidly if you have more nutrients, especially the connective tissues. This is proven by any person who has reversed wrinkles with connective tissue supplements or foods like bone broth, and there are many such people. They supported the regenerative process with more nutrition, and then even areas that were showing degeneration before were able to regenerate just fine. This proves that it is not genetic damage. The genes were obviously fine if the skin got better by eating gelatin every day. The genes and the cells and everything could do its job because it had the raw material to do so. Having said all of this, I do believe there is a serious advantage to being born healthy. 
Though my view is biased because my job is mostly to deal with unhealthy people or health problems, I rarely see healthy children. Based on what I see in the health business, as well as the children of people that I know in my personal life and the observation of people in the public, health problems are becoming extremely common and extremely obvious in children, adolescents, and even young adults. I notice the difference in generations big time. A lot of generations have called the young people of the day soft, weak, or dumb. It seems to be fairly natural to look down on younger generations. Back in my day, things were better, people were better, etc. Of course, we have made significant progress in so many different aspects of society, but I do think there is a lot of truth to the degeneration of generations, especially over the 20th century and here in the 21st. My mother is about 30 years older than me, which is about a generation. The first time I ever saw her sick was only a couple of months ago. She claims that was the first time she was ever sick with a cold or flu. She eats the standard American diet and didn't start supplementing with the 90 essential nutrients until recent years. Her recent supplementing does not explain her lifetime of reasonably good health. Similarly, my housemate, Chef Norman, compared to me, is a beast. I've known him about 20 years, and I've only seen him sick from drinking alcohol. He's never cold, and can pretty much eat whatever he wants without suffering stomach pain. He can even drink coffee at night and sleep fine. We're about the same height, but he's much thicker than me. And I think that goes down to the skeleton. I don't know how much truth there is to someone being big-boned, but it seems true to me. I know several people who appear to have been raised right in the sense that they grew up to be big and strong and carry an enhanced immunity against all kinds of ailments throughout life. I don't think it's correct to say that he has good genetics. I think we all have good genetics. And if we have good nutrition from conception, then our genes and everything else should work properly. Chef Norman actually got me into these supplements about eight years ago. He was taking them before me, but that doesn't explain his robust constitution to begin with. Since industrial agriculture began, there have been nutrient deficiency problems. Anyone who has ever lived in a city and depended on a state-overseen system of food production and distribution has been affected by nutritional deficiencies. Nutritional deficiencies are as old as writing for this reason, writing developed in agricultural societies. The problem only became worse in the 19th century with the widespread introduction of farming machinery, fertilizers, and the beginning of earnest damming of rivers to generate electricity. None of our progress in efficiency has addressed the problems of soil depletion and nutrient deficiencies in humans. Ironically, our industrial capacity means that we have the ability to manufacture sophisticated supplements to make up for the problems of modern agriculture, and the ability to do this very cheaply. Our company currently is the only one trying to include all 90 essential nutrients in efficient formulas, but if more companies or governments tried this as well, we would definitely have the supply. This would practically end chronic and degenerative disease, within months. It would practically end it, but not totally. Over the generations, we have all been born with less and less nutrients in the womb in general. Weston Price documented degeneration in one generation, in several communities who had suddenly begun to eat processed flour and sugar. In one generation, children were being born with faces that couldn't fit all of their teeth. Remember that Weston Price was a dentist, and so the mouth was his primary interest. This was the most obvious form of degeneration to him. Human faces are supposed to be wide, to fit the fully developed dental arch, which should fit all of the teeth, including the wisdom teeth. Primitive people do not need braces because they are born with a wide enough face to fit all of their teeth. But hardly any of us in the modern world are born with perfect teeth. 
Price found that perfect teeth are normal teeth in primitive populations. Not only did they form properly, they stayed healthy, and unless they damaged a tooth by injury, they tended to keep all of their teeth throughout life. Disease is more common now, in my opinion, for two main reasons. The first is that we are chronically deficient in nutrients, and we habitually eat foods that mess us up, as was covered in the text. The second, I believe, is because each generation is being born a bit weaker. I have noticed many cases where a mother is asking me about her child. Upon questioning, the symptoms appear, in my estimation, to be caused by gluten intolerance. Upon further questioning, the mother usually has obvious signs of gluten intolerance herself. Likely, her problem was not as severe as that in her child. To me, this means that she has a gluten sensitivity, or intolerance, and her child is more sensitive. 20 or 30 or 40 years ago when the mother was born, there were a little bit more nutrients in the fields, less use of pharmaceuticals, and much less EMF radiation, so the mother was born a bit stronger. I also noticed this between siblings. Many times, the child I am being asked about, the one with the serious problem, is the second, third, or fourth child. Mother is eating from the grocery store, and she is giving up more and more nutrients with each child. I often see obvious physical and immune differences in each child, with the oldest typically being the healthiest. Many of us had a grandparent who lived to 90 or 100, yet ate whatever they wanted, drank whiskey for lunch, and smoked all day for 75 years. If we dove into their childhood, we would probably find a few key elements that put more nutrients into their mother before, during, and after she got pregnant. If the nutrients are in the mother before she is pregnant, then they are available to the embryo. The child should not be born with birth defects and should be healthy in general. The habits that we are likely to find include the use of a wood stove for cooking and heating. All stoves accumulate ashes. These would normally be deposited in a compost box or pile or added directly into the garden. Also likely is the use of soups. A child raised on soups will be ingesting several important nutrients from bones, marrow, joints, and connective tissue, as well as phytonutrients from food scraps and other vegetable broths. Every person I know who was raised on soups is strong and healthy, compared to their peers. Perhaps they lived on spring water with a lot of sulfur and calcium in it, the kind that smells like eggs. Both of those nutrients and others that will be in that water are key for healthy bones, joints, connective tissues, soft tissues, and I would also add immune function. There are likely other habits that these old people had, despite their bad habits, but we are getting off topic. Their longevity was not due to their genetics. Their genetic expression was due to a good environment, including good nutrition and the presumed lack of chemical antagonists, particularly in the womb and in childhood. Good nutrition from birth should make generally strong humans. The generational degeneration that I believe we are seeing in the modern world is also nothing to do with genetics. It is from the increasingly poor nutritional, chemical, and electrical conditions we are being born and raised in. Having said all of this, this is why the immediate implementation of everything discussed in this book will not result in total eradication of disease. We have many people in this world who were born in far from optimal conditions. Their maximum genetic capacity will be lower than someone who was born with better nutrition and raised with it as well. People born with better nutrition, in my experience, will also have much better and faster results with supplements. My mother, as mentioned, is robust but she had a big enough bone density problem for her doctor to call it osteoporosis. She didn't change the way she eats at all, but she added the missing nutrients, and very quickly her bone density was better than it is supposed to be for her age. Once again, Chef Norman, though robust, 
did not eat well until recently. He was still robust, but he was way overweight and had been losing his hair for years before going gluten-free. I think it has been about two years since he's been gluten-free and he's lost a ton of weight, so much so that his friends don't recognize him. He looks great, but he's still robust. That hasn't changed. All he had to do was cut one ingredient and he lost over 60 pounds. Some people would call him lucky, but I would credit his mother in the exact circumstances he grew up in. Some of us were not so lucky. My pains and symptoms did disappear very quickly when I finally found the right product combination, but I did not suddenly achieve perfect health, and I am still much more fragile than Chef Norman or my mother. I have to stay on top of things. I cannot drink coffee at night, or have more than a couple of glasses of wine. I stay topped up on my nutrients, but I stay careful. So, there is a constitutional difference between people. Some people do seem to have nice skin and be healthy and good-looking even while eating pizza and drinking beer. Likely, it will catch up to them, but it is obvious that they were off to a good start. That is great. If we implemented more of the strategies we covered in this book, we will be giving birth to children who are stronger and healthier than we were when we were born. This is how we can reverse generational degeneration, and it will have nothing to do with genetics. Appendix how to eat at restaurants and on the road. Eating on the road or at restaurants can definitely be a challenge. Before the world shut down in 2020, I spent a lot of time on the road and ate at a lot of different restaurants, and I will share what I know. Before food comes water. The first thing I do before heading out on a long trip, or even a medium trip like an afternoon of errands, or an evening with friends, I fill up a travel container of filtered water and supplements full of electrolytes. The most health-conscious people I know usually drink from a glass all the time, and many of them use mason jars. I use a plastic shaker cup because the road can be rough, and we already break our glass cups in the house all the time, so I don't chance the car. Bring as much water with you as you reasonably can. If you go into a restaurant and they don't have filtered water, you should already have your own. I have said that water probably won't have much to do with your blood sugar, but I really don't ever want to drink tap water, so this is my regiment. Also before food comes salt. Most restaurants use table salt, as natural salts are more expensive. This is also something that really won't have anything to do with your blood sugar, because any salt will still make stomach acid. Most health-conscious people I know prefer Himalayan or sea salt, basically anything other than table salt. And I agree. Natural salt tastes better and has a tiny spread of trace minerals included as a bonus. So I always bring my own salt shaker with a strong lid. On long trips, I can't bring all the water I will need for several days. I have to stop at a grocery store and buy distilled water because it is the most reliably clean without any additives. We don't recommend drinking pure distilled water unless you are fasting because it can lower stomach acidity just like carbonation. This effect is nullified when salt or any other form of minerals is added. It doesn't take a lot of salt to change the water, and adding a bit of salt tastes much better. Even though I usually bring my own water into restaurants, I always ask about their water. Usually a server will bring you water right away, and I ask if it is tap water. I am no longer surprised when classy, expensive restaurants try to give me tap water as soon as I sit down. Ironically, Cheaper restaurants will usually get their serving water from the soda machine, which is filtered. All restaurants tend to use tap water for cooking, and that is one of many reasons I don't like restaurants. I'm serious about clean water, and they're not. 
You don't have to be as picky as I am, but water is at the top of my list of concerns when eating out. So I never order soups or anything water-based unless I know for sure that the kitchen uses filtered water for it. If, for some reason, I don't have my own water, and they only have tap water, I'll order a glass of wine. Usually they'll have some overpriced bottled water, and I'd rather pay $7 for a glass of wine than $9 for a fancy glass bottle of water. The wine will definitely be made with distilled or filtered water. If they do have filtered water, I'll also ask for a slice of lemon or lime to add to it. Ice is also off the list. You can make ice at home with an ice tray, but I don't recommend ever getting ice from an ice machine. This is because of bacteria and mold. Ice machines are rarely or never cleaned, whether they are in a restaurant or a home refrigerator, and a lot of bacteria and mold builds up. If you have an ice machine in your home, ask yourself if you've ever opened it up and cleaned it. Home ice machines usually aren't even designed to be cleaned easily. They're designed as a product feature to sell more expensive refrigerators. Unless someone at the restaurant really cares or actually knows about the ice machine problem, no one is going to clean the ice machine at even the fanciest of restaurants. Pho, or pho, is a famous Vietnamese bone broth dish that can be found at Vietnamese restaurants all over the world, and they usually don't use tap water for their broths because it messes up the taste. So, pho restaurants make it onto the short list of restaurants that I look for while on the road, and I still ask if they use tap water or not. As a rule, there are very few restaurant appetizers that do not have gluten or oil. None come to my mind, other than salads, assuming you're careful about the dressing, and ask for no croutons. Whatever you order, always ask about the ingredients. Oil and gluten are snuck into practically anything both in processed packaged foods and in restaurants. Steak is a very reliable dish, and so I'll always pick a steakhouse first on the road. Steak doesn't come with bread or oil or soy or any of the other problematic ingredients we have mentioned. If they put bread on your table, you don't have to eat it. But if you order something with 12 ingredients and one of them is wheat, your whole dish is contaminated. A small bit of gluten still inflames the intestines. Medium rare steak is my go-to on the road, and I ask if they can cook it without grill marks. Grill marks are charred meat, which is burned animal fat, which is free radicals which is what I want to avoid for the same reason as deep-fried food. Whether they cook the steak on a flat-top stove or wrap it in foil before grilling, I don't care. I just don't want grill marks. You want to tell your server that you are gluten-free, and make sure that they don't put little deep-fried breaded onions on your steak before serving, or croutons on your salad. They also tend to put crispy little deep-fried pieces of flour or onion on baked potatoes and other dishes, so just make sure that you specify that each dish must have none of this. If this seems confrontational or uncomfortable, just remember that this is for your health. If you lit a cigarette in the restaurant, people would be offended, for the same reason that you are bugging the server about gluten and oil. You don't want to be exposed to things that harm you. Nearly everyone is convinced that smoke is bad but we are in the early years of awareness about gluten and oil. Just imagine that we're back in the 1960s, knowing some things are wrong, waiting for society to catch up. It's a server's job to serve you how you wish to be served, and in the modern world, you are not the only one asking about gluten and clean water and so on. Leave a bigger tip if you feel you have been a bother, but the more you speak up, the more you will realize that servers typically already hear this stuff all the time. They know about gluten and other foods that people avoid because they deal with hundreds of people, 
and people have all kinds of specific ideas about their foods, as well as allergies and intolerances. Though it's not entirely honest, the easiest way to make sure that an ingredient is not in your food is to tell your server that you are allergic to it. The server probably doesn't have a medical degree, and probably doesn't know that an oil allergy isn't specific enough to be real. You can be allergic to a type of food, and the resulting oil, but not to oil in general. And either way, they're not going to question you about it. This applies to friends and family as well. If you are invited to eat, remind the host that you are gluten-free. If they are making pasta, they can buy gluten-free pasta. If they're making turkey, they can buy or make gluten-free stuffing and gravy. Oh yeah, be aware of gravy. It's usually thickened with wheat flour. Learn about gluten and where it can be hidden in common foods. For example, mashed potatoes and scrambled eggs that come in a package for restaurants are often made with flour. Be polite but assertive. If you would tip a server for handling all of your demands, then do the same with your family and friends. Bring a gluten-free dessert or a bottle of wine or your favorite gluten-free side dish. Maybe you invite them over to your place next time. If they don't make every dish gluten-free, eat the ones that are. Back at the steakhouse, they'll probably have a bunch of side dishes to choose from, and usually you get to pick one or two of them. I'll usually pick the baked potato, and either steamed vegetables or a salad. I'll ask for extra butter and sour cream. Be careful of salad dressings. They're usually made with oil. Sometimes honey mustard doesn't have oil, because neither honey nor mustard require oil. But sometimes there is oil in the mustard product. Ask the server. If they don't know, they'll ask the chef. A lot of people avoid vegetable oils these days, and they might already know what has oil and what doesn't. Blue cheese dressing often doesn't have oil. If they don't have any dressing without oil, I just ask them to melt some butter and give that to me with the salad. Butter, salt, and pepper isn't the greatest dressing in the world, but it is decent. They might have a plain or flavored vinegar. Not vinaigrette, they're made with oils, and you can use that too. Most salad dressings are just some kind of vinegar mixed with some kind of fat. Desserts are probably off the table. They might have a gluten-free dessert or two, but they'll probably still have oil and other questionable ingredients like flavor syrups. Ice cream in a bowl is generally the safest dessert, besides fruit. Ice cream still has sugar, but it shouldn't have gluten or oil, unless it has pieces of chocolate bar in it or something. Another type of restaurant you can use on the road is sushi. Western sushi restaurants tend to have a lot on their menu that is deep fried and breaded, but there are usually at least a few options that are safe. Definitely call ahead and ask if they have gluten-free soy sauce. Many places do, many places do not. If you're on the road, you should have your own gluten-free soy sauce in the vehicle, if you eat soy sauce. Liquid aminos are a substitute for soy sauce, and it is also gluten-free, or should be. Always read labels. I have come to know many truckers and others who drive for a living, and though it can be difficult, they too can eat according to these guidelines. If you drive for a living, you can plan ahead and make extra dinner for lunch the next day, or prep the meals for a week ahead of time. You can get a nice big thermos and make hearty stews that can easily keep you going all day. Dried dates are my best friend on the road, because they don't spoil easily and don't need cooking or refrigeration. But many truckers have a small fridge in the rig. They can pack a lunch. Cooking for yourself is always the better option. In addition to the ubiquity of gluten and oil in commercial food, restaurants invariably use cheap, undesirable ingredients. 
They try to buy the cheapest stuff they can, usually. A high-end steak restaurant will be buying high-end cuts of meat, but most of the time everything else is standard cheap ingredients. The salad will be bland, most of the dressings will be generic, the potato won't be anything fancy, the salt will be processed table salt, and the water will likely be tap water. One of the last types of restaurants I will eat at are all-you-can-eat buffets. I know this might come as a shock to some people, because these places have a reputation for being cheap and unclean. The reputation definitely has truth to it, but there are very few restaurant options out there that will have anything without gluten or oil. I have walked out of vegan restaurants without eating because there literally wasn't one thing on the menu that didn't contain oil. Other than steak and sushi, I don't expect to be able to eat much at other types of restaurants. I love Middle Eastern food, or Indian, Italian, Greek, etc. These foods and flavors are great, but I can't count on these cultural restaurants to have anything free of gluten and oil. Sometimes there is one acceptable thing on the menu, like gyro meat, without the bun, and the Greek yogurt sauce is fine. Everything in the Indian restaurant will probably have oil. Italian restaurants in a city might have gluten-free options, but otherwise it is doubtful. I like more than one option, and so I like buffets. There might be 200 different items on display at a big American all-you-can-eat buffet, and I might only be able to eat 10 of them. So that is what I will do. I'll have some roast beef, some steamed vegetables, some fruit, maybe some ice cream at the end. At least I can look at what I'm eating before ordering it and read the ingredients. I think it's a good deal. Another rule of thumb is to remember that anything that can be eaten as a sandwich or wrap can be eaten in a bowl. You can have a burger and most of the standard toppings, just not the bun. Some restaurants now offer a portobello mushroom bun, and that is fine too. You can eat at sandwich shops and burrito restaurants, but get it in a bowl. The stuff inside the sandwich is what you are really paying for anyway, not the bun. Learn which condiments contain oil and which do not. Obviously, whole toppings like pickles, tomatoes, lettuce, and olives are completely fine. Ketchup and mustard don't require oil, but in America and other countries, some companies put oil in their ketchup and mustard products. Check labels and learn which brands are okay. Mayonnaise doesn't need to be made with oil, but practically every mayo product in grocery stores and restaurants will be made with oil. Barbecue sauce doesn't need oil, and many products do not use oil. Salad dressings almost all use oil. You can make all of your own condiments at home quite easily and may need to just forget about these while on the road, unless you have a fridge in the vehicle. Breakfast restaurants are generally acceptable. Ask if their coffee is made from filtered water. Most major coffee franchises use filtered water to maintain a stable flavor, but small coffee shops often use the tap. As mentioned, beware of scrambled eggs. Ask if it comes from a package or if they made the omelette on the spot. My favorite type of restaurants are small and family-owned, because the same people are likely to be there all the time. If you eat there regularly, they get to know that you want your meat cooked a certain way and all of these other requests. For the most part, when on the road, I don't stop at restaurants. I stop at grocery stores. I top up on clean water, dried fruits like dates, figs, and apricots and any other dry fruits I can find that don't have oil or a preservative. I don't normally eat nuts at home, but on the road I will look for nuts that don't have oil. Most of the nuts at grocery stores and gas stations do have oil, so make sure to always read labels. 
Most of the cooked food options at grocery stores, such as rotisserie chicken, will have oil. The chickens are basted in oil as they're roasting. Sometimes I get lucky and find something in the cooked section of a grocery store that doesn't have oil or gluten. Generally, I expect not to eat much on the road. Dates are often my only meal for a day or two. A serving of supplements, to me, counts as a meal, and I usually double up on the road. Fasting is a good thing anyway, and a few days without many calories is not a big deal if you already have healthy blood sugar. More. At Wallach's Warriors is our main Instagram account. We regularly answer live audience questions and we will answer every message in the inbox. Our products can be found at www.wallachswarriors.ca. We encourage you to contact us for help figuring out what might be best for you. As well as any of the accounts listed, you can email us at ygyontario at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram page for more detailed nutritional information, at Warriors Advanced, and a page for personal development and sales training material, at Wallach's Distributors. At Notice Foods teaches how to make practically every dish you could think of without the bad foods listed. We have talented cooks and bakers who will take requests and answer questions. We also have a YouTube channel, Notice Foods, to teach cooking according to our guidelines. At Ryan Alexander is my personal Instagram account, and I post mostly book reviews. My personal YouTube channel is The Real Notice, where I post mostly my opinion, as well as read-along versions of my books. I also have a podcast, Notice and Friends. At Transcend Towers is my cell phone tower Instagram account, as well as miscellaneous conspiracy material. At The Real Notice is my art Instagram account. Behind everything else, I was always supposed to be an artist. I also have a YouTube channel, Notice Art, teaching art on a budget. I have art, prints, and clothing for sale at www.noticeart.com. All of my books, audiobooks, and links are available at www.noticebooks.org. We can be reached by phone, toll-free in the USA, one 888 Our cookbook, Dr. Wallach's Cooking Without the Bad Foods, teaches everything you would need to know to cook without the bad foods. All of our books are also available on Amazon. I have written a book about alternative health from my perspective in the business. It's called Fake Diseases. A disease is a legal title that grants treatment to licensed medical practitioners. If a problem does not require medical treatment, it should not be called a disease. Misleading names lead to misleading treatments. This book covers the common diseases and health problems, including birth defects, sexually transmitted infections, bone and joint problems, blood sugar problems, and digestion problems. I make a case that cancer, autoimmune problems, HIV, and the new disease are also questionable in their definitions, explanations, and treatments. In most cases, I am not doubting the existence of health problems. I am questioning the way we think about these challenges and respond to them. I've also written a book called Everything the Government Does is Bad for Us. I have two separate problems with the government. Most of what governments do can be handled less expensively by private companies, and governments often do things that do not need to be done. Both cases are harmful, though to much different degrees. 
In this book, I discuss government failures in several categories, including infrastructure, food, health, environment, business, education, and more. Though I do not claim to have answers to all of the problems in these categories, I have some ideas for improvements. Media and private conversations tend to attribute government failures to accidents, ignorance, arrogance, or that it was an isolated incident. Instead, I argue that these failures are predictable outcomes to government structure and policies. I believe there is a better way, but to have that conversation, first we must understand that everything the government does is bad for us. I've also written a book about my financial journey called I Did It For The Money. I have attempted to run several businesses that were more about my heart than my head. These businesses failed. Money must be one of the central goals in our lives if we expect to adequately care for ourselves and for our families. If we want to make a wider difference in the world, this is even more true. I spent much of my life in poverty, and in this book I go through my financial life story leading to my eventual success. I have used financial principles that have existed for centuries, and you can too. There is an extended version of this book that includes my favorite financial story, The Richest Man in Babylon, by George Klassen. It is only available in Canada and Japan. It costs a few dollars more, and you can find those links on noticebooks.org. I've also published a book in defense of Dr. Wallach, in response to his critics. It's called The Nutrismart Rebuttal. Recommended Reading The following recommendations are in alphabetical order. Most of these recommendations pertain to concepts brought up in this book, but some of these topics were not covered. I have very few books to recommend on the subject of blood sugar, but this list covers most of the topics relevant to general health. The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter, and Miracles, Bruce Lipton. Lipton is known as one of the fathers of epigenetics, which is the science of how genes are affected by the environment and nutrition. This book goes into particular detail on the power of the human mind to influence the health of the body. Lipton not only goes into great detail about the science of epigenetics, but also details several incredible cases of disease reversal with the mind alone. The Case Against Fluoride How Hazardous Waste Ended Up in Our Drinking Water and the Bad Science and Powerful Politics That Keep It There Paul Connett Though fluoride, and water in general, is not the key to achieving healthy blood sugar, water is definitely important to our health. Further than that, the issue of fluoride is also political. Fluoride is a medicine, which is supposed to be dispensed by a licensed medical practitioner with the express informed consent of the patient. This is not what happens when this chemical is given to entire populations for the purpose of preventing tooth decay. The legal framework around fluoride can be used to infringe on our right to informed medical consent more broadly, and we should all understand this issue. This is definitely the best book on the subject that I know of both in describing the potential harm and the legal implications of mass fluoridation. Chasing the Cure, an effective alternative for treating cancer and other diseases. William Bengston. I haven't found that many books in the category of faith healing that I am able to recommend, but I really enjoyed this one, and I think everyone should know about the possibility of spontaneous healing, without medication or nutrition. I believe we should use all healing modalities available, but faith and the inner placebo response are often left out of our mechanical approaches to health problems. I can recommend all the nutrition that I know, but I also know that your mind is more powerful than any treatment, 
and there are plenty of cases, some of which are described in this book, where the person healed with no other treatment, except someone who believed they could help you heal. Part of why I like this book more than other faith-based books is that the author participated in several experiments with mice, which is very interesting and I think speaks deeply to the power of the mind to heal. The Cholesterol Myths Exposing the Fallacy that Saturated Fat and Cholesterol Cause Heart Disease Ufi Ravenskoff This book goes into incredible detail about the long history of misleading science behind the cholesterol scare. The medical establishment has no idea what causes, prevents, or reverses heart problems or cardiovascular disease, and so they have looked for things to blame. Cholesterol and saturated fat have bore the brunt of their efforts to explain heart disease, but as this book clearly shows, the science involved is hardly convincing. Deadly Medicines and Organized Crime How Big Pharma Has Corrupted Healthcare Peter Gotch Gotch goes into great detail on the harm of pharmaceuticals and the length to which the pharmaceutical industry has manipulated data and public perception in order to sell their drugs. This is probably the most thorough book that I know of covering the demonstrated harm of pharmaceuticals. Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History, Suzanne Humphreys. This is by far the most detailed book that I know of on the history and harms of vaccines. Most people think that vaccines have eradicated many diseases, but this book comes as close to what I think is possible in proving that this is not the case. The harm of vaccines has been buried since the very beginning of their use, and there is convincing evidence, thoroughly outlined in this book, that the disease disappearances credited to vaccines were in fact due to improved hygiene and the renaming of diseases. The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor Mark Schatzker This book isn't as scientifically oriented as others on this list but I highly enjoyed learning about the chemical manipulation of our foods that have the aim of getting us to eat more. It is already bad enough that the base ingredients of modern foods are mostly bad, but the situation is made much worse by the manipulation of flavors. The food industry is more insidious than I knew, and I recommend this book because it made me see processed foods in an even darker light. Epigenetics The Death of the Genetic Theory of Disease Transmission Joel Wallach this book goes through the entire history of failed theories about the origins of diseases, as well as outlining our modern understanding of the nutritional relationship to genes. Epigenetics is the science of how genes are affected by the environment, including nutrition, and I know of no better book for describing the concepts involved. Grain Brain The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar Your Brain's Silent Killers David Perlmuter this is one of my favorite books outlining the scientifically demonstrated harm that wheat and other grains do to the human body, and specifically the brain. In Praise of Slow, Challenging the Cult of Speed, Carl Honer. Slow eating was mentioned in the text, but Honer gives insight into many more beneficial aspects of slowness. In the years since first reading this book, I have slowed down several things in my life to great advantage. I think I am a healthier person as a result. The Invisible Rainbow, A History of Electricity and Life Arthur Furstenberg This is currently my favorite book going into the details of the harm of electromagnetic frequencies. I have been in the anti-EMF business for several years, but even I didn't know how bad the problem was, and how far the evidence of this harm stretched back, to the very first experiments with electricity and batteries. Prior to reading this book, I thought the main species affected by EMF was humans, 
but Furstenberg shows ample evidence of the harm to plants and animals as well. The mainstream still treats EMF like only kooks and quacks believe it is a problem, but Furstenberg presents a veritable mountain of evidence from scientists all over the world and spanning over a hundred years. This is a must-read for understanding the scale of the EMF problem. The Mindfulness Solution Everyday Practices for Everyday Problems Ronald Siegel I have read many books on mindfulness and stress relief, and it was difficult to pick a recommendation. I think this book hits the right balance of proper length, many strategies, but also a solid human narrative to tie it all together. This book helped me, even after many years of reading other books on the topic. Misconceptions about the causes of cancer, published by the Fraser Institute. This short book is an excellent overview of the problems with the statistical probabilities of many supposed influences on cancer. You might have noticed that the text hardly mentioned common chemicals and other things that the general public and news media believes contributes to cancer. The reason for omitting these chemicals is that their contributions are hardly well established, and this book is great for understanding that. This same understanding can be applied to blood sugar. Many things are said to contribute to blood sugar problems, and this book should help you examine claims more critically. No More Sleepless Nights, a proven program to conquer insomnia. Peter Hari. There are a lot of books about insomnia out there. I like this one the most out of the handful I have read. This book summarizes most of what I have found in other books on the subject. It even recommends some of the essential nutrients, and establishes the connection to healthy sleep but the authors definitely fail to emphasize this. Nonetheless, I agree with their basic recommendations they give for improving sleep and easing out of the insomniac lifestyle. Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, Weston Price. This is one of my all-time favorite books. Price went all over the world looking for people who had not yet been in contact with modern foods. What he compiled was a data set that will probably never be replicated, because these groups are now fully affected by modern agriculture. Price documented the direct relationship between eating modern foods and physical degeneration. He was looking for the cause of tooth cavities, but he found that the same nutritional factors that caused cavities also caused most of the health problems we deal with in the modern world. He documented people who had never eaten modern foods and compared them with people of the same genetic and cultural stock who had begun eating modern flours and sugars. He also documented several reversals of cavities and other health problems with simple nutritional changes. Price did his work before the age of supplements, and I always recommend this book for anyone trying to understand the relationship between food and health. Our Daily Meds How the Pharmaceutical Companies Transformed Themselves into Slick Marketing Machines and Hooked the Nation on Prescription Drugs Melody Peterson this large book goes into great detail on the ubiquity of pharmaceutical companies in our everyday lives, particularly in America. While other books go into specific detail on the harm of pharmaceuticals, this book is more about the lengths to which the pharmaceutical companies have inserted themselves into every aspect of our lives, and the lives of our children. The actual harm of pharmaceuticals, to me, is bad enough, but this book details how much deeper and darker these companies can be. Passive Smoke, The EPA's Betrayal of Science and Policy, published by the Fraser Institute. This short book examines the highly influential 1993 EPA report which condemned secondhand tobacco smoke as a cause of cancer and other diseases. The average person would think that the science behind tobacco smoke was clear and demonstrates an obvious risk to health. If that were the case, 
the Environmental Protection Agency wouldn't have had to commit scientific fraud to make their case. A lot of policy has been built around the anti-smoking campaign, and so it is very important that we understand just how much manipulation was involved in creating the public image that smoking was the cause of a long list of diseases. Like cholesterol, the medical world has no idea what causes, prevents, or reverses cancer or heart disease or the many other problems that smoking takes the blame for. They had to blame something, and they have used weak statistical correlations and other forms of data manipulation to make their case. Smoking policy has been created for our own good, and this same framework has been used to implement the many new laws and mandates we have experienced since 2020. Bogus data can lead to real government policies that affect us all. Fortunately, a U.S. federal judge agreed that the EPA committed fraud in their report, but unfortunately, most people didn't hear about that. Smoking has nothing to do with blood sugar. If you come to me with a blood sugar problem, I don't care if you smoke or not. I don't ask, because it doesn't matter to your protocol. But, anti-smoking legislation is very important, and so are medical dogmas. Some of our nutritional advice can be hard to believe. Everyone knows that salt and fat is bad for us, right? But, even alternative health people believe the gospel that smoking causes disease. You would think that it was an open and shut case, but that's far from true. If you can understand the many frauds perpetrated in the name of phony causes like smoking and cholesterol, then hopefully you can deeply question every new study and health-based government policy. The Peanut Allergy Epidemic. What causes it and how to stop it? Heather Frazier. I didn't cover allergies in this book because it can be quite complicated. Many people refer to environmental sensitivities like hay fever with the word allergy, but a sensitivity to pollen or cat hair or the occurrence of seasonal allergies are not actual allergies. Real allergies cause a serious reaction, are life-threatening, and require an injection of epinephrine. Real allergies are a bit of a mystery to both mainstream and alternative medicine. But this book makes a detailed and interesting case that many of our current allergies are caused by ingredients in vaccines. I highly recommend this book, even though I do not think it explains all allergies. It does, to me, explain many of them. The Placebo Response How You Can Release Your Body's Inner Pharmacy for Better Health Howard Brody Positive results with nutritional or spiritual strategies are often denounced as the placebo effect. The mind is indeed one of the most powerful tools, if not the most powerful tool for healing available. We should all understand this phenomenon, rather than using it as a way to dismiss results. This book doesn't have all the answers, but gives a lot of information about how we can all maximize our body's natural ability to heal itself. For those of us promoting health products and protocols, it is very useful for us to be able to call upon all the most effective tools for bringing out the placebo response, in addition to the active methods we are employing with a client. I highly recommend this book to anyone attempting to heal themselves or others. We cannot dismiss the placebo effect, we have to work with it. Rare Earths, Forbidden Cures, Joel Wallach this book is the most detailed overview of the relationship between nutrients and diseases that I know of. This type of detail is normally found in textbooks, but Rare Earths is publicly available and written for a general audience. It includes a lot of documented evidence as well as examples from standard media to draw the connections between nutritional deficiencies and diseases and causes of death. Sit Less. Evolve your work and life without compromising your health. Stefan Zavalin. 
This has recently become one of my favorite books on the subject of movement. Rather than emphasizing full-on exercise, Zavalin takes a very realistic approach to helping those of us who sit for a living to improve our health with simple steps revolving around sitting less. I know that the average person does not have to go to a gym to get healthy, and that exercise itself is not the key factor to health. But we are definitely designed to move, and we modern people definitely sit way too much. This book is short and very practical, and I recommend it for all chronic sitters. Wheat Belly. Lose the wheat, lose the weight, and find your path back to health. William Davis. One of the questions that come up when I say that gluten is bad is, why is it any different now than it was in the Bible or from my grandmother? Wheat has changed significantly since ancient times, and even since the time of our grandparents. This is my favorite book for outlining the history of wheat and similar grains and the demonstrated harm that modern grains have done to us. Zapped. Why your cell phone shouldn't be your alarm clock. And 1269 ways to outsmart the hazards of electrical pollution. Anne Gittleman. This is my current favorite book outlining many practical strategies that we can implement to reduce the effects of EMF in our daily lives. Other books go into great detail on the actual science of the harm but fail to give us many practical suggestions for reducing the harm. This book is very accessible and requires no technical knowledge of EMF. Acknowledgements All of the core information in this book derives from Dr. Joel Wallach's work. I credit him with my health because his products got me out of pain, and his protocols have allowed me to optimize and thrive. Most of my understanding of disease and nutrition comes from Dr. Wallach. On top of the nutritional information, Dr. Wallach is a leader in this field of personal health, and he is the reason I am on this mission too. There are few people on earth deserving the level of respect I have for him, and I will promote this message in his name as long as I am able to. My time with him not only taught me the protocols, but how to handle questions from the public. Dr. Wallach has many books and lectures published, and I recommend all of them. All of his books can be found on www.drjwallach.com. I must also acknowledge pharmacist Ben Fuchs as a core inspiration for the delivery of this message. He really helped me understand the human application of Dr. Wallach's message, and his generosity and support has been key to my growth in this field. I have stolen many key phrases and explanations from him. Ben produces a lot of content, and it can be found on www.pharmacistben.com. Ben produces a lot of content, and it can be found on www.pharmacistben.com. Another person I've borrowed heavily from is Dr. Peter Glidden. Dr. Glidden has done perhaps more than anyone in really breaking down the message. In the early days, we would meet someone with a health problem, then go home and watch a Dr. Glidden webinar on that problem. I don't think I would have understood any diseases without Dr. Glidden. Not only does Dr. Glidden go into great detail on what causes diseases, he explains what works and what doesn't and why. More importantly, he explains how and why to talk about these things legally. My main understanding about the legal importance of disease, treatment, and cure come from Dr. Glidden's teaching. This subject was the main focus of my book, Fake Diseases. Dr. Glidden has a YouTube channel, Glidden Healthcare, and you can find more about him and his content on www.glidden.healthcare. Dr. Glidden has two books, The MD Emperor Wears No Clothes and Attempt to Cure with Holistic Medicine.
I have met so many amazing people in this business, and many of them have given me their time, advice, books, and other form of support. I cannot name them all, and I cannot properly express my gratitude to everyone who has helped me in this journey. Outside of our company, I have found warmth and support in the alternative health world as well. I have become friends with several people in other companies and have learned a lot from them. We all share common goals of promoting good health information. I'm proud to work in this field and in this company. I don't know where I would be without this information, and I hope it has helped any reader reach a better understanding. I would also like to acknowledge the many people who have supported me in my growth as an influencer online. It is you in the audience who keep me in check, hone my ability to explain things, and generally keep me going. I probably would have given up the very difficult task of teaching all this stuff if it weren't for you guys. It is because of you that I know the difference our efforts make, and it is because of you that I will not stop. I have mentioned that my mother is my biggest supporter, but she has done far more than encouragement. I haven't always been a good person or a good son, but she has always stuck by me. In my darkest years, she was always there to talk to, even when I didn't have anything good to say. Now she is practically my best friend, and I couldn't be more grateful. On top of all that, she handles much of our shipping these days, which she is not compensated for nearly enough. Finally, my lovely wife is easily my toughest critic, and without her keeping me sharp, I may get lazy in my presentation. It is because of her that my books are thoroughly researched and edited, and it is for our life together that I work so tirelessly for. From the bottom of my heart, thank you all. Alright, that's it. That's the end of the book. I appreciate you making it all the way through. If you do purchase the paperback, hardcover, or ebook version of this on Amazon, I would appreciate a review. If you would like health advice from us, me and my team, you can contact us in the description of this podcast. You can see the contact page. We have a questionnaire that's there on the contact page. You fill it out and email it to the coach of your choice. There's a bunch of coaches there. If for some reason you're a weird or difficult case, they are going to run it by me, or I might even take over your case. But that's how we get started. You fill out the questionnaire, we give you a starting recommendation, we give you the food advice and the supplement advice for free, and anything else that's relevant to you. We do make money on the supplements, if you choose to purchase them. And together we can help you achieve healthy blood sugar, and possibly results on other health problems. And once again, you can see everything else that I do, all of my books, and the free audio video book versions of those books, as well as an archive of this podcast and more, all on my website, notusbooks.org. And of course, beyond this book, we have lots of episodes here on the podcast all about health. And that's it for now, guys. I do appreciate you once again. Stay healthy. Until next time.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 